Fellow knowledge seekers, I hope you've had a chance to listen to the Waterline podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. People ask me all the time, Shane, what's the future look like? Are we going to flourish? Are we are, are we going to drive ourselves to extinction? Are we going to destroy everything? Are we going to create heaven on earth? A big part of that incredibly complicated question is water. Water is absolutely fundamental to life. And knowing what is going on with water, the various technologies, the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water around the globe is really fundamental to understanding questions like that. And if you guys are into science and learning about things that affect our lives and the world, which I know you are, I believe the Waterline podcast is for for you. I just finished a episode called Water for All Regulation all about comparing the different regulations in different areas like the Israeli water law passed in 1959 and comparing how their system of of regulating water compares to California's model of regulating and how We might work together to figure out the best pros and the cons of different systems all around the world. Very, very important stuff. Please check out the Waterline podcast on your Android app and at the iTunes store. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you to the Moat Aquarium for uh, making today happen for me. Uh, they're an organization that got uh, some emails from a uh, stand-up comic out of the blue and took a chance and, and let me record an interview with, um, with one of their top marine biologists. And so I'm very thankful for that. If you're ever in Sarasota, Florida, make sure and go to the Moat Aquarium and check it out. It's a wonderful aquarium. And enjoy the episode. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with my new friend, Kim Basos-Hull. She is the senior biologist at the Moat Marine Lab and research, research associate at the Chicago Zoological Society and uh, Sarasota Dolphin Research Program. <laughs> I think I said all that right. And she also has her own business called Flow, which I'll let her talk about more in a moment. Um, but uh, first off, hello, Kim. Thanks for joining me. Absolutely. Thank you. And thanks for the tour around um, for the listeners. I got, uh, this is already one of my favorite episodes because I got a free uh, personal and and behind-the-scenes tour of the Moat Aquarium in Sarasota, Florida. And uh, and so that was very exciting. Can you talk a little bit about the Moat Aquarium and the Moat Research Lab in general, and then we'll get into what you do? Absolutely. Like, well, Moat Marine Lab has been around. Actually, we're celebrating our 60th anniversary this year. It's been around since 1955, and it was started by Dr. Eugenie Clark, who just recently passed away. But... It was um, 
always to study life in the sea. And she specifically worked on, a lot of her research was focused on sharks in the early years, but it has since grown into a world-class aquarium and research facility. And we do a lot of educational outreach too. So we have um, many PhD uh, research biologists studying everything from the littlest stuff in the ocean and water quality up to the big predators like sharks and um, dolphins and things like that. So fascinating stuff going on and it's a great place to work i've actually been there myself since 1990 and i love what moat does and the um, image it presents of highlighting the research in the public aquarium so that's one of the benefits of moat is i think they're able to share some of the cool research findings Hmm. and what are you doing at moat you do many different things (laughs) from from the sounds of it it uh it's kind of a little bit all over the place yeah, well, I initially came in and um, was very fortunate to start working in 1990 with the Sarasota Dolphin Research Program, which is actually the dolphin population in Sarasota Bay is the world's longest running study the um, anywhere in the world. So what's, what's cool, so basically I started out studying dolphin populations, looking at, um, we do photo ID to identify individuals, we can track individuals over time. And the cool thing about Sarasota, since so many animals are known, that um, it, it you know individuals, you can track the the grandmothers and the mothers and the great grandmothers, and you can these family lineages of dolphins and look at who they're associating with, and you know, and some of the conservation concerns that have come up with them. Um, there's uh, so there's great grandmothers. Did you say dolphins with, have with great dolphins, grandmothers? Yes, they do. Wow. We have at one at one point we have a lineage that has five generations in Sarasota Bay of dolphins. What's the lifespan so well of a dolphin? Well, interestingly, I mean they can live females into their sixties, mm. and um, you know some of the males can live into their late forties and fifties, and that's what we've been able to track from long term research of this population here, which is headed up by um, Dr. Randy Wells, who's a very a well-known uh, research biologist studying studying this population. Hmm. And um, and and you're also uh, working a lot on on uh, kind of preventing some of the more negative effects of human behavior. Yeah. So I guess like in my time of you know I started in 1990 and we spent a lot of time on the water, um, seeing dolphins out in their natural habitat. And then over the course of many years and going back repeatedly to the same spots, we started to notice more incidences of entangled animals or entanglements on animals. And we realized that there was this increasing problem with, you know, fishing line in the water or the animals interacting with fishing lines. So it's so it's an issue that we've been trying to trying to work with and reach out to the anglers to see if we can prevent it in the first place and so that's been kind of a great project and one of the things that's come out of um so and and basically we've tried to understand um some of the human impact issues and things that we might be able to do to educate the public uh, to reduce these potential impacts um i'm i have a personal question about dolphins i lived in malibu for a few years and uh across the street from 
the ocean, I'd go out on the beach and I'd see dolphins sometimes and I'd try to swim out there and, okay. and swim with them. Is that okay to do? Can you swim with dolphins? Are they going to like attack you? Or are you, they're, they're not going to attack. Are, the dolphins don't no, attack well, people, do they? You know, there have been a few incidences of dolphins actually going up and, and biting people. So we don't actively encourage people to go and jump in the water and swim with dolphins, especially if they're... Because everyone at the beach looks at me like I'm a lunatic when I do it. Right. But, you know, but the dolphins are out there in the environment. They're out there with the boaters. And I know my husband's a big surfer, for instance, and Mm -hmm. he constantly, when he goes out surfing, the dolphins are coming in and they're surfing on the waves right next to him. And that's pretty cool. I actually was standing there watching him one time and he had three dolphins take up up in the wave right next to him. And so that's pretty cool. Who who was better at surfing? I would say the dolphins. (laughs) There's some pretty cool, if anybody wants to go out on the internet and just type in surfing dolphins, you'll see some amazing footage of surfing dolphins. And I and I've seen in in my days going out. Sometimes we'll I'll see the same dolphins. We'll be out doing a survey, and and there's some waves coming over the bar. And I've seen these dolphins literally surf the wave, go back out, pick it up five, six, seven times. So you know that they're they're doing something for fun. You know they're going right. out there and they're so it's a pretty cool when they do that. But to get back to this the swimming with dolphin thing, if you're if you're out there, um, you don't want to like. In, infringe on their natural behaviors so that's one of the things we try to promote is like viewing them at a distance we recommend 50 yards or so you'll see really cool behaviors you'll see them doing things like feeding or socializing with each other sometimes if you jump in and try to swim to them they're going to stop and go up I'm I'm out of here, and that's what we yeah, often see here. Do. Yeah, they take off because they're like, okay, who's this weird so, floppy thing in the water? Well, sometimes they'll come out around and swim by me, right? Which is amazing, but uh, but usually they take they off. Talk. I think they have a natural sense of curiosity too. So I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if that happens sometimes, but. Of course, I mean, they're just doing what, on their terms, what they want to do, so. If there's dolphins around, does that, you always hear that if there's dolphins there, that means there's no sharks around. I think that's a myth. Yeah. Because I have been out, I can tell you from some of the survey work that we've done, we do transects along the coast here, and we're looking for marine megafauna. So that's uh, dolphins, uh, manatees, sea turtles, mostly our research is focused on rays. And, um, but I can tell you, and we, we, we record all species of sharks too, that we see, and we'll see dolphins, sharks, manatees, you know, all within a couple hundred meters of each other sometimes. So they're all living out there in the ocean and coexisting at times. And so I wouldn't say it's a safe bet. If you see a dolphin, there's no sharks around. Okay. Um, good to know. And it's, it's funny. Well, the uh, moat, Aquarium does tons of stuff with sharks too, right? I didn't realize that there was great whites in around Florida, but you're telling me that that there are some around. It's it's not many, not like in like Australia or right. Well, like I, I don't the, think the, the density, the amount of great whites is probably as uh, they're probably not as abundant as around Australia, but they have tagged uh, great white sharks up off Jacksonville as part of our research pro- pro- program with OSearch. And some of our, like Dr. Bob Huter um, and Dr. Nick Whitney from our lab um, have collaborated with some other researchers to tag some great whites. And uh, a couple of those sharks, yeah, actually did come into the Gulf of Mexico. So from satellite tags that were put on these sharks, it was pretty amazing to see. And sometimes they were fairly close to shore um, up off Jacksonville. So, you know, something to be, you know, worried about, but just just. You know, they do live in the ocean, too, and, 
you know, I think that um, we just have to have an appreciation for them and, you know, know what to look for. Plus, Florida's like (laughs) clearer water, it seems like, at least in my experience, too. And you were, I didn't know this, but you were talking about, you had, uh, you had went, um, diving with some sharks recently right i forget the species that it, you're... uh the great hammerhead i was out in uh in bimini and we were with a research lab out there the bimini biological field station and they have their they've been doing extensive research with especially the lemon shark um but recently they've also added some research with the the great hammerheads and doing some tagging and tracking with them and we had an opportunity to go out and see some of their research and action and they're trying to photo document the the sharks and they had tagged some of them too and so they're able to see um where these sharks are moving technology has been amazing to advance the study i'd say in my 25 years at moat i've seen some advances in technology as far as tagging and tracking abilities that just are allowing us to learn a lot more about animal movement patterns, which is really cool stuff. So where is it at right now? Like what kind of things are you guys doing? Well, the satellite tags that can be put on these animals and it's showing these animals. How big are these tags? um, Sometimes the size of a microphone, you know, I'd say like a a mini microphone. um, And there's a couple different kinds of satellite tags. One type is put on the animal and it's called a pop-up tag. And so eventually it collects data by uh, light attenuation in the water. And so it can tell like sort of the vague Latin long where that animal is. And then it records the dive uh, pattern. So how how the animal's diving, how deep it's going up and down and up and down. Um, And that's called a pop-up. So that one, once it pops off three, six, nine months later, it gives all its data to the satellite. And all of a sudden it comes in all at once. The other kind is a is a spot tag or it's a toad tag that gives real time locations a couple times a day whenever the satellite's passing overhead, as long as your animal is fin is breaking the surface because it has to be an air to satellite connection. So for some species that are deep divers, it doesn't work. But some species like whale sharks um, that spend a lot of time manta rays a lot of time close to the surface, you know those are great tags for them. Mm. So that's that the newer, newer stuff that's been happening. Um, well, it's been around for a while, but there's good advances is acoustic tagging. So these are uh, tags that can be put in that have little pings that are given up, given off. And then there's receivers around like underwater receivers. And every time that animal passes by a receiver, it goes ping and it picks up that animal. And because researchers are starting to work together, this is what's great. There's big array systems out there and collaborative cooperation going on. So we're able to pick up each other's animals that we're tagging. And so that's very exciting, figuring hmm. out where these animals are moving underwater too. Oh, that's very interesting. And, and you're telling me when you're driving, or driving, tr- tr- diving, <laughs> yeah. when you were diving, you you said that like you got spooked a couple times um, by, by a shark, but you weren't too worried about it because you were in clear water. Right. And I didn't understand at the time how that made a difference but it's yeah i mean i i felt completely i've been in the water diving with uh, sharks like down in the keys and you'll see sharks they're part of the natural reef system you know you'll see them swim by and it's cool because you can see them at quite a distance um but it's it's you know when all of a sudden one comes around the back of you and you're like oh oh," you know you just kind (laughs) of looking over your shoulder but but you know every time they're just checking you out you're not their normal prey they're yeah they can see you so clearly when it's a 
visual thing, you're not their normal prey. You look weird to them. They don't want to eat you. They don't want to bite you. Um, the most of the shark bite incidences take place in places where the water is a little bit more murky, um, you know, and it's more of an accident. Mm. You know, the animals often like will bump or they'll bite first and then they're like spit spit you right back out. You know, <laughs> that's not what they meant to eat. You know, so it's more accidental. Hmm. And so I hope I'm not delicious. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> Do you see, uh, now they have the, uh, have you seen those, uh, this is just popping into my head, have you seen those wetsuits now that they have for um, like anti-shark wetsuits? They have, they have ones like camel, so the idea is rather than putting on this black wetsuit that makes you look like a seal. Right, um, makes sense. They have, they have like uh, ones that are like camouflage so it'll it'll blend it they're blue with like waves in them and stuff so it'll blend in with the water and then they have other ones that are like orange or something like that like a uh, of something that a shark wouldn't want to eat so it's a col- it's a color in the ocean that they may not see like a big bright orange blob floating around yeah, that yeah. they're not going to want to yeah well that's inter- that's i have not heard of those but yeah i'm definitely you have me interested i'm going to go be googling this yeah, as soon as yeah. we're done <laughs> Yeah, I'm just, it's something that I think about a lot because I love Mm -hmm. swimming in the ocean and I can't, I do it uh, quite often, um, but I I can't not think about sharks when I'm in there swimming. I have to like put it out of my mind a little bit because I mean, it's, it's funny because it's, it's just one of those silly human things where of all the things to happen, the chances of being eaten by a shark is so ridiculously small. Well, I think the biggest thing is you just have to be smart about it. You go in the ocean and if don't do it like dawn and dusk and be flopping around in murky water with a lot of fish swimming by, you know, then, then you might be, you know, putting your increased risk chances. But if it's a clear day and there's lots of people there or middle of the day, I mean, your chances of having some sort of shark incident are, you know, much reduced. <laughs> yeah. Cause everyone's so scared of sharks and then everyone, everyone loves dolphins, but mm-hmm. dolphins, <laughs> dolphins aren't always the best behaving <laughs> species in the entire world. I've heard some, some real shady things about dolphin behavior. Yeah. Do- dolphins after definitely have a Dr. Jekyll. Is that right? Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, yeah, yeah. Or whatever that, you know, the flip side. So, I mean, cause they're the species I've been studying the longest and, um, you know, and I've done, spent a lot of time following groups of dolphins out in the bay. And um, we do this so we can look at their activity and create something called an activity budget. And, you know, so I've seen some, you know, some dolphins beating up on others and they have big toothy mouths and they can like grab on each other. And in fact, when we see dolphins, sometimes they'll have big rake marks. They're called rake marks because they just take their teeth and, you know, part of their socializing is grabbing onto each other and, um, yeah, and sometimes it can be in an aggressive manner, but sometimes it's just part of their normal sort of play social behavior, um, especially with like young subadults, ones that just left mom and they're trying, they're like the teenage dolphins and they're rowdy and they roughhouse. And those are the ones we see jump out of the water and body slam on each other a lot or breach. And, um, but so it's interesting that they're kind of figuring it out when they're young teenagers and then these male dolphins eventually will figure out a favorite buddy that they have and then when they get to sexual maturity they'll establish what's called a pair bond with another adult male at least that's what we see here in the sarasota population and then these two males will cruise around and look for a female that's kind of 
giving off vibes like, hey, I'm an estress, you know, come mm-hmm. check me out. Um, and sometimes they'll follow this female around and you just see the two of them trailing her. And sometimes the female will have a calf, you know, but they have a year gestation, you know, so they, they do it, they move on. Um, and a year later, you know, the calf is born. So usually we see the males, when we see two males tracking a female, we pretty much are saying, okay, probably a year later, you know, she's going to have a kid. Hmm. <laughs> um, and I've heard, so that's, that's your typical, um, mating behavior of a dolphin. I don't, uh, that's, uh, that's strange to me. I didn't know that there was a buddy system involved. Yeah, definitely a that, buddy system. I hadn't heard of that in any other species. Other, I guess humans do that. It's not, yeah, but like a wingman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Go to the bar, ask yeah. this one, okay, we work in tandem, you know, yeah. and then they track the female, yeah. But yeah. I haven't heard that in other, and they're not, these aren't brothers or anything, right? These are no, just friends? Oftentimes, the they're finding that the, the, the males come from, they're typically similar age, so they're born to moms that were hanging out together. So the kids kind of grew up together, and same cohort, so to speak. And um, so they kind of know each other as kiddos, as young adults, as they're socializing and being real rowdy. And then, um, yeah, and then eventually they figure out which partner they want to choose, and they move on like that. And then usually, once they decide that, you almost always see those two males together. BFFs. BFFs, absolutely. Um, uh, but because they don't, but they find a female and and they mate with a female and then they're just gone though, right? Right. That's all they're doing is they're, they're giving her, you know. Right. Like every other man. Yeah. There's no parental investment from the male right. besides the, the sperm. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, Speaking of like parental investment and um, which makes me think of evolution, um, the the dolphins didn't dolphins evolve from land dwelling yes. mammals. So you're gonna make me uh, reach back in my head. So it's a wolf like ancestor. Yeah, Probably. yeah. It's a mess. I think it's. I the said that on a it. podcast, and a, and a zoologist <laughs> said I was crazy. No, not at all. They definitely. It was like a wolf like ancestor with these big, like long, toothy jaws, and they used to like splash around in really shallow water to catch the fish, and then eventually, the ones that like were able to go out and swim a little bit did a little better, and then eventually. They just their could swim legs, further their legs turned into sort of flipper appendages, and then eventually they said, "Why bother coming out into land? We can float in the sea." And so they're mesonicid ancestors. I mean, that's the name of the, you know, the. But yes, wolf-like ancestors for for dolphins. So I think hippos did the same thing, maybe. If, if yeah, I'm and hippos right. are hippos I, I are. Mean, well, they're not. They haven't gone back in, right. but they kind of came out further and then started going back. They're in like that transitional back, back to the sea, back to the phase. sea. Uh, it, it's that's blows my mind because it's. Um, it, you know, it, it takes a while to kind of understand evolution. I think most people are like, oh, okay, I get it. We it, there's fish, then reptiles, and uh, you keep on going until there's humans. But it's a, a lot of people don't think that some things just went right back in <laughs> into the sea, checked it out on land for however a million years or something like that. We're like, no, thank you. Right, and, and it's interesting that you say that because there was, you know, also reptilian. Anse- reptilian ancestors that were uh, very dolphin-like 
that were in the sea swimming around, but they were definitely reptiles. And they had this a similar kind of body shape, long to the jaws that they were swimming around with. And um Really? So, yes, but what was tying the obviously the the um wolf like ancestors or the as they adapted to life in the sea was having to come up to the surface to breathe air. Mm. Versus um so that's that's one thing that and, and it's interesting if you look at the evolution of, of dolphins over time, you know, their noses used to be on the front, right? And then slowly over time that that blowhole where they have to get air from has migrated to the top of their head. So it makes it so when they swim, they're more streamlined now. So they don't have to actually pick their head up out of water, which makes sense, right? So if you don't want to break your swimming, you're able to just kind of roll a little bit, breathe, and then, and then go back down. Ah, so, hmm. That's why their blowholes are on top of their head. So basically their yeah, no- yeah. nose is on top of their head. Makes perfect sense when you say it. Okay. And would have never thought of that. I didn't realize that they had started out nose just like any other nose that you see huh um and then and and one of your first um your uh one of your first projects was taking dolphins um captive dolphins and releasing them into the wild and kind of seeing how they did basically well i mean there's a plan right Right, exactly so so interestingly i was brought to moat by uh dr randy wells as a as his graduate student and i had met him at the university of california santa cruz where i also met a another pair of dolphins their names were echo and misha and so echo and misha were part of a really cool um sort of uh reintroduction experiment so they were actually caught in tampa bay which is just north of us here in sarasota the west coast of florida they were brought to um, long marine lab at the university of california santa cruz and used in echolocation research these were two subadult young males then it was always the plan to reintroduce them or release them back to the wild two years later and see how they reacclimated to the wild the reason this was like an important thing to try is because there's several species you know a few species of cetaceans which are dolphins and whales um, that are in danger of going extinct. In fact, since we started that project in 1990, the Baiji, which is in China, has gone extinct. So we're, we lost a cetacean species in my lifetime. Hmm. The vaquita in Mexico is another very one that's about, you know, it's only a couple hundred individuals left. It's in dire, you know, it's not, you know, unless something drastic is done. Well, I remember so, I was going around the aquarium yesterday. And it's just like every single thing is labeled as either at risk or, uh, it, you know, near extinction or. Right. And I, I mean, so there it's yeah, the ocean is, you know, it's having its issues. I mean, we're putting more into it. We're fishing it a lot and things like that. But. Well, just to finish the story really quick about the reason that for the for the reintroduction thing was to, to, to test the possibility if they were going to have to catch other more endangered cetacean species and try to have them in captivity for a period of time for captive breeding or to release eventually once the habitat got better. So anyways, Echo and Misha came to Santa Cruz and then we brought them back. And my master's thesis, that's what brought me to Florida, was to follow them and see how these two dolphins reacclimated back to the wild after you know being in a research tank for two two years and it was really cool to see them as they established a pair bond for the short duration once they went back and to see them interact with the other dolphins and be sort of accepted back into the wild dolphin population in tampa bay 
And um, so I looked at their behavior patterns, their associate, who they were associating with, um, what their ranging patterns, and made sure that they were established typical patterns, which they did, and it's great. And we actually, one of them, unfortunately, died in 2006, so 16 years after we released them. That was Misha. And the other one, Echo, was just recently seen last year um, in 2014. So almost 24 years later, he's still doing great. That's awesome. I would have, if I were being taken care of, I would have just been like, I'm fine. I'm fine here. <laughs> that's, that's like, I, a lot of people want, want you to release everything in the aquarium. I'm looking around. I, I got the good fortune of seeing the, the feeding in the shark tank yesterday, which happens only three times a week. And mm-hmm. so I just lucked out and happened to be there at the right time. And I was like, man, I wish I had keepers and the, like <laughs> a personal <laughs> trainer, dietitian, making sure I'm getting all the right vitamins and everything. Yeah. Um, but but really, the thing is, is that um, it, it, you know because the trade off is uh, it, you know there's a lot of issues with captive animals and everything, but you're also able to inform the public and. Um, and educate people and people are getting hands-on experience and, and right. hopefully they're caring I, you know, more. And I, I, do, I think they have their value and you get that, especially that impressionable kid that walks up and gets to be eyeball to eyeball with a shark swimming by and they're going to remember that. You know, They're going to have an appreciation for that shark or that ray or that dolphin that they're going to see and they're going to laugh at it and see some of the cool things they do. So I think you know the great thing that I love about Moat is that it really promotes the some of the research it doesn't do anything fun and you know it doesn't make dolphins jump through rooms or anything like that (laughs) but you know i appreciate that that they do a really concerted effort to highlight the research that's going on and as you mentioned the conservation issues so it's letting people know that this really cool animal that you're seeing in front of you is these are some of the issues it's having out in the wild and why are there these issues happening and then you know, eventually trying to bring the message home is what can you do? What's something that you can do as a human being to maybe help to, you know, promote better conservation of our oceans and the habitats these animals live in. So, Hmm. I still think he ought to be able to like put a tutu on a a shark (laughs) once in a while or whatever, just for my own amusement. Uh, People seem to have a problem with that. I'm pro tutu on a, I haven't heard that one before. Well, they used to like, like back in the, I think back in the seventies, they used to like dress up dolphins ridiculously and and like make them do all the, like put little funny hats on them and and, and stuff. Well, I mean, I think yeah. I mean, there's a point where you make people people laugh, but you know, and I I guess I can see that a little bit. I'm old. I'm just joking. I'm not. I'm not really for dressing up dolphins. Sometimes I'm a little. Yeah. No. 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 You're fine. But it's funny, you know, if you think about it, like how much exposure after, was it Katy Perry and the Super Bowl, Left Shark, remember? You remember all that thing, the dancing sharks and the Super Bowl show? show. Oh, I How much don't promotion, like things. sharks got. I, I didn't see no, that. it was the Super Bowl. It was like the... Yeah, the, I don't, Yeah, anyways, she I don't had dancing sports. sharks and there was all this stuff about... It, it was just funny that that... There was stuff about... Uh, <laughs> she had dancing sharks and people were really upset. Wait, were they no, live? They weren't sh- upset. No, 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 they weren't alive. They were costume sharks. But oh, it was funny. Yeah, it was funny how much exposure that got. It's like you know, there's shark stu- cool shark stuff going on all over the world, and I think the biggest 
shark story of the year was Katy Perry and her dancing shark. So that is the world we live in. It is. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, you're doing things like like there's uh, at at Moat they're working on um, on research with trying to figure out how to improve human immune systems and antibiotics and stuff, right? You were explaining. Right. Um, can you talk just uh, briefly sure. about that? We, I know it might not be like your work specifically. No, exactly. But. We have some uh, researchers, uh, Dr. Carl Lur and Dr. Kathy Walsh, working on some of the marine uh, biomedical things that we can learn from animals that um, especially, you know, they focus on sharks and rays. Um, what can we learn? Like, especially they're anti-cancer. Um, they 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 have inhibited. They don't grow tumors like that like we would. Um, and interestingly, like rays, for instance, they have very fast healing. So if they get bit by a shark within a week, you know they're they're healed up. And um, so Dr. Lur is looking at what is it on the mucus coating of those rays? Like what maybe antibacterial properties does that? mucus coating have that is making that ray heal maybe it's a new source of antibiotics something that we're just looking for new sources of antibacterial um properties so that things that might help heal humans better you know there might be something new and unique we can learn from nature um because these things can get a chunk bit out of them mm -hmm. and then just heal right up Yes. I mean, we've seen some, some of the rays. And here I am with a, I've had a hole in my foot for about <laughs> one year that refuses to go away. I need, I need some of that yeah, shark Yeah, you need some ray DNA mucus. And, yeah, ray <laughs> mucus. <laughs> Can you uh, talk to your doctor today okay. about ray mucus? <laughs> Excuse me, doc. <laughs> Do you have any stingray mucus? <laughs> uh, um, pardon me. <laughs> no one's ever asked me that before. Oh, it's just just a thing I heard about stingray mucus. Just rub a little bit well, of that on there. Well, you never know. Five, just like shark cartilage, you know, five years ago, ray mucus is the thing of the future. So. <laughs> it's all... Uh, every up. Everyone... Uh, <laughs> Take all your money, drain your savings account, invest it all in ray mucus. That's it's the next big go. thing. It's really going to take off. I mean, that sounds important and everything, figuring out the immune system and understanding cancer. But you do have to admit that having fun costumes for Super Bowl uh, <laughs> halftime shows is just a little more important than all of that stuff, you yeah. know? <laughs> but at least it brought exposure to sharks. So, you know, yeah, yeah. sharks are cool. Sharks are cool. <laughs> So are rays. So are rays. I'm a little biased towards rays myself, but yeah, you you started working on rays not too long ago, right? Yeah. So it's very interesting. So so basically, I, since 1990, I've been a basically a dolphin biologist um, and studying wild populations of dolphins. And then in 2009, I had the opportunity to um, start a research program with studying a, a species we see around here called the spotted eagle ray, which is a large, beautiful pelagic ray that has really cool spot patterns on it and um, divers love to see them so if you're in the you know florida keys or diving in cozumel or cancun in those areas i mean everybody wants to see an eagle ray because they're you know these large beautiful rays that fly through the water um but one of the things that i found out when i was approached to help um, start this is that they're a very understudied ray. There wasn't a lot published on them, unlike dolphins, with, which have been extensively studied over the last you know 30, 30 years or so. We've started to learn a lot and unlocked a lot of secrets about dolphins. Rays, we're still needing to learn a lot about, and especially 
because you know there's something called the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and they they have this particular ray species, spotted egray, listed as near threatened and a little bit data deficient because we still don't know a lot about them. And the concern is that there's you know there's some targeted fisheries in other countries, you know, in the Gulf of Mexico and places in Asia and things like that that we just don't really know about the sustainability of the fishery. So in order to understand that, we need to learn more about basic life history about these animals and, you know, how old do they get when they're sexually mature? How many pups do they have? How old do they live? All that stuff is very important for making decisions about how you manage uh, fisheries and looking at potential population declines and things like that. So that's been part of our initial focus is to gather this really important life history information. And, and, and it's been great because it's giving, given opportunities to work with colleagues in, for instance, Mexico and Cuba. And, um, do, do you get to travel down there? Yes. So oh, wonderful. Uh, Mexico and Cuba and do collaborative research. And, and part of our mission at Moat too, is to do conservation training. So we bring researchers to us too, and they get to participate with our research and come out on the boat and help with, you know, capture of rays, measurements, taking samples and blood sampling and genetics. So they learn all of this in here so they can take it back to their respective con- countries. And um, they've learned new skills and established programs in their country. So that's been a really, one of my favorite things that that I've been able to be involved with over the last couple of years. You get to study all of the coolest stuff in the aquarium. Some poor sucker has to like monitor the goldfish. Oh gosh! And you're and you're doing like dolphins and rays and all the best things. Yeah, some days I feel feel pretty pretty lucky. So, but I you know I I guess I get to study. They call it charismatic megafauna. So it's all the the cool animals that swim around. But but it's important to talk about. <laughs> wait, wait, hold on. <laughs> okay, go back to that word. Okay. Charismatic <laughs> megafauna. So, and, and what's that mean? Well, charismatic is things that obviously have some sort of character, right? Just, you know, smiley faces of dolphins, or things that people have an extreme interest in. Sea turtles, manatees, dolphins, sharks. These are all big animals that are really cool and funky. So well, there's people, a scientific word for fish that people like. I wouldn't say it's necessarily scientific, but it's that's that sounded that's real science. I know. Well, megafauna is like big big fauna instead of micro yeah, right. microfauna is tiny stuff. But I'm telling you, the small stuff in the ocean is so cool, like the little plankton and um, you know, if you just look at under a microscope, um, the coolest little little things <laughs> weird sounds outside the window yeah we're like in this ghetto-ish area of sarasota where i'm where i'm put up by and then there's some there is some white trashy neighbors in this area that i'm at and they seem to be making some (laughs) some odd noises at the moment and so we just got a little bit distracted okay i'm sorry back to the charismatic megafauna no um but yeah the plankton okay Plankton are cool. I am like totally because recently. That's the first time I've ever heard that sentence. Plankton are cool. (laughs) They are these tiny little, and they are the base of the food chain in the ocean. Yeah. Okay. So uh, phytoplankton, which interacts with the, they use energy from the sun to, and then they get eaten by the zooplankton, which are the little tiny, tiny animals. And eventually the zooplankton will get eaten by things like 
like whale sharks, you know, so the biggest thing in the ocean, the biggest fish in the ocean is eating some of the smallest little critters in the ocean. And so it's sustaining life and it's just their solar panels. At, yeah. If it's amazing when you look at these plankton, though, like all the little funny eyes they have and projections that come out of them. So it's just under a microscope. It's like, wow. And there's billions of these things in the ocean. You know? They have eyes. Oh, yeah. Little tiny eyes and for some reason, I guess I don't shrimp. know what Think plankton about shrimp. is. Shrimp eyes, right? So, like a little, a little uh, zooplankton is basically think of a shrimp, tiny, tiny little shrimp. They all start out is, as it, little. Is it, so, is a shrimp considered plankton? A shrimp is plankton as it, in its larval stage, like when it's teeny tiny, oh. and then it gets to a size where it's like you know, it's it's a little bit bigger, so we can see it with the human eye, or you know, it fits in the palm of our hand or something. But boy, I really need to brush up tiny. on my plankton information. <laughs> I know nothing, but it's the base of the food chain. So that's why you know we need to like protect, keep our oceans clean, and you know, protect coastal habitats. Ah, it'll be yeah. fine. <laughs> No. Mutant plankton. <laughs> Mutant <laughs> plankton. Let's talk about that. So, so let's okay. talk about um, humans' effect on the environment. Let's get back to that a little bit. Sure. Well, you know, it's interestingly, a couple things. Since I've had the opportunity to, to travel recently to other countries, I do see that we are able, you know, marine debris, you know, that's the trash that goes in the oceans you know, the impacts that it has on wildlife and just on coastal habitats. You know, I've had the opportunity to observe it both here in coastal Florida and in other countries and see, you know, just the amount of, especially plastics and plastic trash, um, bottle caps, plastic bottles, plastic bags, you name it. It's washing up on the beaches or it's just discarded sort of indiscriminately. And so, you know, one of the things I try to do is that you as a person can make a choice to use reusable bags, right? So go to the grocery store, refuse the plastic bags, bring your own, um, have a water bottle, refill it up. You know, those are all kind of things that we as human beings can do to reduce our potential impact of that stuff getting in the getting in the oceans. Or we can just make mutant plankton that feed off of plastic problem solved sort of well i mean wait yes, maybe. i did not expect the word sort of to come out well, after the most ridiculous possibly, thing that but said. then that's what's sort of been happening okay so the plankton are feeding on the the little pieces of plastic or the big pieces of plastic we throw there over time they break down into microplastics so mm. teeny tiny pieces and what has been happening is they've been ingested by plankton and they're working their way up the food chain. So animals are, they're finding some ocean animals, larger like birds and stuff that have been eating a lot of f fish that have been, those fish have been eating those plankton and it's concentrating those plastics up the food chain. So it is a real concern in the ocean. Wow. The microplastics. So the plankton are eating the you know the plastics and it is it's always there. weird when i say the most ridiculous <laughs> thing i can think of and then a, a scientist thing. is like oh yeah yeah that is a thing that's happening yeah so but another kind of marine debris like uh, that i was saying there's a couple of them is fishing line so one of the issues i think in the very beginning i was mentioning seeing um entanglement problems with mm -hmm. dolphins over spending a long time on the water and we've had to do rescues we have to go get dolphins that are tangled in fishing line and rescue them and disentangle them and so sometimes it's so bad 
that we have to bring them into, like Moat has an animal hospital. What's it like when uh, you get a dolphin, it's all tangled up? Like, is it is it like really scared? Is it nervous when you are coming to help? Does it like, do some of them sometimes seem to understand when you're helping them or? It, de- it depends. Sometimes we've been able to do. This is getting very field. anthropomorphic, I yeah, suppose. Sometimes but. we've been able to do field disentanglements. And um, what that means is going out with like a line cutter and reaching up off of the bow of a boat and like grabbing onto the line that the dolphin's trailing and cut it off. And that's been successful. And then, yeah, sometimes the dolphin will swim away and jump a few times. In fact, there's been some incidences of like, uh, was it a gray whale? I think in Baja, California, where they were able to take the line off and it swim away. There are some professional whale disentanglement teams like off the California coast and off of um, the East coast of the U.S., and these teams are able to imagine going up to a large whale that's towing a big, a lot of times in these cases, it's crab trap pots or things like that, pot line, which is thicker than fishing line. But sometimes it's fishing line and they have to approach that whale and get the line off. Um, but occasionally the dolphins hit the beach. You know, they have, they're so severely entangled that they hit the beach and they're, they're tangled up and sometimes they die and we record that and we have, you know, stranding, a stranding response network and we're able to monitor the number of animals that come in with fishing line on them. We actually just published, um, with a group of co-authors, I was like fourth author or something, but, um, it was a group of us that were manatees, sea turtles, and dolphins looking at stranding records, looking at incidences of interactions with fishery gear, such as fishing, fishing line, which we called hook and line or crab pot, or um, nets. And um, we did uh, look, notice there was an increasing trend in animals coming in stranded with fishing gear on them. And we looked at hot spots around Florida because we feel it's important for those areas due to, do, to do targeted cleanups, for instance, getting fishing line out of the environment, or better yet, we have a program. Um, we want to try to prevent it in the first place from getting in the environment. So we actually promote fishing line recycling so yes you can recycle fishing line you can collect it and there's receptacles all around the state usually at fishing boat ramps and we have a program called stow it don't throw it that was actually developed by one of my uh the moat high school interns his name is sean russell and he came up with the idea of getting this these personal sized fishing line recycling bins out to fishermen. It's just like a, uh, it's almost like a tennis ball holder or something. I'm looking at it That's right now. Exactly what it is. We're using recycled tennis ball cans. Oh. We go to the clubs, we get what they're going to throw away these plastic tennis ball containers and we get them and uh, put a few stickers on them, encourage people to recycle fishing line. We give them a little clip of piece of Velcro to attach it to their tackle box or their fish cleaning table or their, um, you know, and this, this program has started to take off, um, throughout the country. Initially it was in, implemented here in Florida. It's called stow it, don't throw it. And now we're working with, um, people. I was just out in California, actually talking to the California coastal commission folks out there. They're starting to get it. And, and the great thing is kids make these and kids have this passion for wanting to, you know, it's the, they're the ones, it's their ocean that they're taking over. So that's what I love about it is it's a really kid generated 
idea to do this. This is the second. I'm going to skip around just a, a sure. real briefly because this is the second time it's popped into my head. I wanted to ask uh-huh. you. You keep talking about um, like encouraging kids and and getting them. How did you? Uh, did you have like a moment when you were a kid or something like that oh, that you decided I... that? Hey, how did you? How did you become a marine biologist? So that is a funny question. Okay, so I grew up in. Hartford, Connecticut, West Hartford, Connecticut. So I had access, I was always an animal lover and I always did stuff with animals and stuff. And and I had an opportunity when I was in high school to go on a whale watch up out of Provincetown, Massachusetts. Did you actually see a whale on I, a whale watch? I actually saw That doesn't a whale. always happen. Okay, so here's a funny story. So we went out on this whale watch and not only did we see whales, we saw right whales. And I don't know if you know about right whales, but right no. whales are severely endangered. There's only a couple hundred left along, well, along the eastern seaboard. And um, back then, <laughs> what I happened to see on our whale watch was two males fighting for the right to breathe. <laughs> they were kind of like battling it out with uh, each other in order to try to breed with, there was a female there. This is what the naturalist was telling me. So here I am in high school, but what do we see? I'm going to laugh when I'm telling this. Um, but two whales' penises come out, and they're battling, and I see Yay. just these big pink, literally six feet long yeah. penises flying through the air, two of them, and they're rolling on their backs, and the female's like trying in this whole mumble-jumble, and <clears throat> the naturalist is trying to explain this to all of us. Not only did we see... Well, they're rare to us, I'm sure, to these two males. (laughs) A female is very rare. Yeah, you better fight over that. So, yeah, so, but that's the way they were, they were fighting. So I got to see this, this, this breeding behavior and, and, so you saw a six foot penis and it changed your life. (laughs) That's pretty funny. That was like my first whale watch exposure was seeing this. But what she said, I remember the naturalist saying, I know I'm laughing to him. He has me blushing right now. (laughs) Good. So, but they, (laughs) but she said, she goes, you guys don't know how lucky you are to be seeing this right now because this species is, is becoming rare it's having conservation issues and you know we just are trying to learn more about them and i don't know from that moment i just said okay marine mammals are cool i want to study them so when i looked for colleges i was looking for ones that had really strong programs in marine marine um, mammal stuff and university of california santa cruz happened to be that university so that's i went from connecticut all the way to california to go to college and you know looking back that was the best decision of my life and here I am today. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, very cool. And I wanted, what was I going to get back to? Oh, this is what I, yeah. So we were talking about the lines and, um, it, you know, messing things up in, in litter and pollution and everything else. Well, there's also poaching is a big problem with, especially with sharks, mm-hmm. right? Which I'm sure to a lot of people, it's like, well, sharks are scary. Let's let's get <laughs> let's get rid of them. Right. So, what's the problem with getting rid of sharks? What, okay. What's the consequence? Absolutely. So, so around the world, shark finning has been a big issue, um, and there's been population declines. In some instances, they've estimated at about ninety percent declines. And so, you're taking what you're doing is you're taking the predator, the top predator out, and in this case, what might be happening is, you know, so they're kind of regulating, they're the top regulator of the food chain, right? So if you take that level out, other things are going to get out of whack. So you're going to have some animals below them in the food chain that are just exploding in abundance. And then they're 
interacting with other levels of the food chain that are being eaten down. So, you know, sometimes they can get the food chain just gets out of whack like that. Mm -hmm. And so, and and plus, I mean, we just, there's so much we have to learn. But it's so delicious. I I don't understand it. Like why, why is the, I've never had shark. I I don't. So what's the, uh, the fin is it, does it, is it supposed to have like magical healing properties or something like that? It's tradition about the shark fin soup. And I'm, I mean, I myself definitely have never tried it, but, and, and it's been, it's a traditional dish and, um, you know, but it's a more recent dish. It's not something if you go back historically, and I think in that culture that there it goes back thousands of years or even hundreds of years. It's a kind of more recent recent tradition, and because of so much demand, it's it's unfortunate that the 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 shark finning the majority of the time they're just cutting the fins off and releasing Leaving the shark to die. to die in the ocean. Um, if they're going to harvest the entire shark and use all the parts and they're doing it from a sustainable fishery, then it's probably okay. But when you start taking sharks that are endangered or threatened, you know, there's very low numbers of them and just cutting off fins indiscriminately and throwing the carcass back in the ocean, then there's, you know, then there's problems. You know, you can see that that's something that needs to be worked on, worked on from a conservation perspective. And I know you're not the, you know, the shark person there, but this, it's mm-hmm. so fascinating, all of the various um, tools that uh, that sharks have evolved to to get around, to to catch prey, and, and all this different... And, and, and you guys are kind of testing some of the... I, I see sometimes you put on, like, nose plugs on a shark to see, <laughs> to see like, how much it's using its sense of smell. And yeah, so, so, so you'll take out a sense uh, for a while exactly. to see what, how much it messes up. That was the research of Dr. Jane Gardner. Um, and she actually, you know, modified and used different things where she'd, yeah, plug the noses sometimes or cover the eyes or, you know, so what the sense... The shark's got to be like, what the hell is going on right now? Just to see what's most important yeah. or how much um you know their behavior changes and the way they forage if they have a sense that they've lost sharks have amazing senses they they um for instance they have electroreception so they're able to detect the electrical impulses of food in the ocean so if they're close to something they can pick up the electrical vibes we all give off electrical like vibes. hippies are able to yeah. <laughs> just like hippies. sharks are like yeah <laughs> hippies can do that too i'm told yeah uh, I have some psychic friends. They detect friends the aura. That, that, so that sharks, sharks have, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. they can tell if you've got a good aura or a bad aura. <laughs> right. But yeah, so sharks can detect uh, electrical impulses. So that's one way they hmm. can find their food. Um, they also have an awesome sense of smell. So they can smell, what is it, a drop in the blood, a drop of blood in the water from, you know, a mile away or something like that. But that's probably exaggerating, but they do. They have an awesome sense of smell. So I should really, I'm going to make sure and let my foothold heal completely <laughs> before going for a swim again. It's you, probably you would not say. a bad idea not to have open wounds and go into the ocean. Right. In fact, some of the shark attacks that do happen are when um, fishermen are spearfishing, right? Because they're spearing a fish. That fish is bloody. Ah. They're carrying it around on a stringer, dragging it behind them. And that's almost like saying, hey, fish, hey, sharky shark, you know, come here right. and get it. And I think it's just more of an accidental thing. But yeah, so yeah, so what do we talk about? We talked about smell and electroreception and. 
Yeah. I like that you can't put a tutu on a dolphin, but you can plug a shark's nose or (laughs) or blindfold (laughs) it for science, though. Yeah. Um, So I want to talk, well, about a few more things. But before we start wrapping up, uh, what is the charity or in i think in your case charities of the week yeah well i um i want to promote obviously moat marine lab where i work we do incredible um research and conservation work and education work so um and if you're ever in sarasota florida come visit moat (laughs) come visit moat guys there's not there's not uh it's a nice city sarasota's a nice city especially if you're over 65 or something. <laughs> <laughs> like my audiences have been all week um wonderful wonderful beaches here oh, it's the, beautiful beaches yes we have the, the keys the number one siesta the, beach number one yes, beach siesta. in the nation yep. it's uh, amazing so. um but if, if you're in town so you, you maybe come for that and stay for the moat aquarium right so moat's great so moat you know all you know, research for studying the oceans has been obviously very underfunded and cut from both federal and state levels. So, you know, research funds to allow us to do our research. So, yeah. So if you're donating, to, want to donate to Moat, you can dedicate it to a specific research program. I happen to say donate it to the Shark or Ray Research Conservation Programs. But um, there's many programs. So go to Moat's website, check it out, find your favorite sea animal or your favorite program, and you can um, target your donation towards specific research projects. Or you can give it to Moat in general. If you say, hey, we love Moat in general, just you know, use it as you wish. The other thing... I, wanna, I, I want a brick. I want a, oh, one yeah, of the yeah. bricks on the entrance. We That's do. We I have brick, memorial bricks that you can buy and place well, on our sidewalk and be I want there people to walk on my name. I know, I know I'm not going to be yep. on the walk of fame ever in my life, so I can instead, <laughs> <laughs> I can instead the donate. Brick, the brick walk with uh, Yeah. So, I mean, the other organization that I'm going to plug that's a personal favorite of mine outside of, you know, the marine realm is the Nature Conservancy. Because I over time have just seen you know the loss of wild land and I, I just think it's really important going forward that we are protective of the wild land that we have left and the nature conservancy is one of those organizations that i just think does a great job nationwide worldwide of really um, trying to go out there and find first of all what areas are critical to protect first off and put money there at, um, target it to the critical areas first and then they just are a really well-run organization. So those are my two picks, Moat Marine Lab and the Nature Conservancy. That's wonderful. And let's talk about your business a little oh, bit. <laughs> right. For, for, we're, we're promoting Sarasota, Florida. <laughs> if, you're in, if you're in Sarasota right. and you want to so, go, is, is, is it, it's based in Sarasota, right? It is right? based in Sarasota. So I own a um, business called Flow Paddle Tours, and Flow stands for Love of Water. And I started this in 2009 as like a side job. For the it. love of water. For love of water, yeah. right? And so I started this. It's, I do kayak and paddleboard, stand-up paddleboarding, take people out for tours and lessons and stuff because I love to talk about the marine environment. So it was a great way for me to kind of bridge the gap between the cool research we're doing at Moat and be able to talk about it out on the water and promote you know, some of the cool sea animals that we're seeing out there, get people engaged face to face with what I call the real Florida, you know, getting them out on the water in an estuary or in a mangrove tunnel, you know, and they're getting to see oysters and crabs and fish and, you know, lots of the birds that hang out in the mangroves. And that's really cool. Or, you know, we happen to sometimes see dolphins or manatees, you know, and that's 
just there's nothing like it being sitting in a kayak and 50 yards away a dolphin swims by and decides to rush and catch a fish right in front of you so that's pretty cool yeah um, i i mean that's a it's, that's <laughs> amazing because uh, I, do you tell people on your site that you're a marine biologist and you're going to it, because that's such an amazing benefit because i've done i've rented stand-up mm-hmm. paddle boards it's one of my favorite things to do i've tried surfing a couple times did not work <laughs> for me <laughs> at all um stand-up paddle boarding 30 minutes and you kind of get the hang of it and you're really moving along yeah. and um i i wanted to buy those things are expensive they are they are so <laughs> i wanted and to I buy one them, but and um, and uh but but i've i've been on like I've, i go to places and will do various things like that but mm-hmm. to go in and like oh i want to go for a nice little stand-up paddleboard and then you have a a marine biologist <laughs> with you pointing things out and and guiding you to all the best areas that's uh, that's amazing yeah, well, you are the best stand-up paddleboard um <laughs> to uh, tour or renter or whatever you call it in in cool. uh the country both thank you yeah appreciate in, it. in my opinion <laughs> that i've heard a lot better than the weird shack next to my old place in malibu um where i was worried they were gonna like steal my wallet and oh. everything so <laughs> i'd much rather take your <laughs> well next time you're in thing. sarasota yeah I will, awesome. I will make sure that happens but it is it's a wonderful place if anybody comes to sarasota get out on the water kayak paddleboard um visit moat you know, downtown is 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 cool. It's fun. There are occasionally young people here, so <laughs> <laughs> it's um. it's a nice place. If you're a young yeah. person, it's a really nice place. Uh, there's just not a lot of a lot other of young young people. <laughs> young people around. There there are plenty though. If you go downtown right. and there's the yep. bar scene and everything else, that's right. cool. But um, well, let's talk. Uh, I wanted to talk just a little bit more about the rays um, before okay. taking off. If that's cool with you, yeah, absolutely. Uh, if you have anything else too that you wanted to talk no, about, no, well, we yeah, I think we've we've yeah. under talked about it, like the 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 rays, which are like sort of sort of my new favorite species. I mean, I'm yeah, definitely. Um, I really like. I I had seen and kind of heard about the, just from. Uh, you know, Netflix has all sorts of wonderful like marine life specials on it, and I think it's Deep Blue or, or some, some I forget some of the names of some of them. But I I had seen this. I didn't know it was called uh, the counter shading. I uh-huh. had seen that in some other species, and I guess I just it didn't click. I didn't really think about it with the rays. Could you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. So. Well, today at, the, at Moat, I was showing um, Shane about the the rays, how they have this unique, or not unique, but it's uh, the the way that their body is, they have dark on the top and very light on the bottom. And these are the rays that you typically see swim through the water. That's called counter shading. And actually, dolphins have it too. Dolphins tend to be dark on the top and have lighter, whiter bellies. The reason that this is is because, you know, if a predator is coming after you and they're seeing you from below and your white belly is against the close to the surface and it's against the light sky, you blend in. Right. So you're shaded that way. But yet, if you're close to the bottom and the predator is coming down from the top to get you, you're you're darker on the top. You're blending into the darker ocean bottom. So either way, you're kind of covered unless Hmm. you flip over and swim upside down. Then you're you might be trouble so it's like they need to they need to change like camouflage and people too so so like when you're on the edge of the woods like half of it's like regular camouflage and then the back half is like a suit 
or something yes. like that so you can <laughs> fit in and either it's a little like that i guess out, and so if you're looking at them from the woods and <laughs> or from the city either way you're blending in right um and why are they spotted the that is the question of the year so yeah we are often wonder why why the eagle rays are spotted what's Thing that one thing that's really cool about the spotting patterns is they're unique to the individual. So we're able to identify individuals by their spot patterns, and we have a whole database catalog. We've oh, that's Steve. Yeah, uh, he's got those four spots. Yep, exactly. So we're able to identify them. Um, we, I mean, the rays that we catch and tag as part of our research program, we actually do tag them with something called a pit tag. That's the same thing that most people put in their dogs, the little chip that goes in that you can your vet can scan and it beeps a number. So that's what we do with the rays. We inject this little tiny pit tag in them, and then we can scan and see if we've caught them before. Um, but the, the spots, so... But that's we also take photographs. We can identify them that way. The interesting thing is they have a variety of spot patterns. They're not all the same. If you ever go on the internet, type in spotted eagle rays, um, look at some of the different spot patterns that pop up for images, Google images, and there's a variety. And they're just beautiful, um, the variety of spot patterns that they have. Why they're spotted? You know, that's that's a really good question. We, we In fact, when I'm with other researchers talking about it, we all kind of, why, why do we think they're spotted? Well, maybe it's a way that they can recognize each other. You know, maybe mm. it's a way Joe can recognize Steve and, you know, all that kind of thing. But, you know, I don't know. Because some rays are very neutrally colored, like the Kano's rays you saw at Moat. Hmm. So this is this is the last thing that I want to talk about, and one of the things that I'm most interested in, I think you'll be surprised that this is what I'm the most interested in, is you um, did some work with, I saw, I looked through your publications, mm-hmm. and you did some work with um, kin structure and social organization in the spotted rays. Can you talk right? a little bit about that? Yeah, and that was a paper done by a colleague of mine using genetics to look at animals that were caught in groups. And looking at whether there's any relatedness of, you know, if if you see the rays sometimes will aggregate together. So you'll see most of our sightings, let me step backwards. Most of our sightings are single rays where we're seeing them. They're often in a shallow sandy spot um, or in a grass flat because they're likely probably out foraging and stuff. So I think they go out and they forage individually. Rays, for instance, eat mollusks so rays spotted eagle rays are specialists they can go out and grab a big old snail they have these crushing plates they can crush it up and spit out the shell and ingest the meaty part so they don't really need their buddies to you know help corral some fish together you know they don't need cooperative feeding but at some points they come back together and they'll get in these aggregation groups so purposes of the aggregations might be predator protection you know safety in numbers um, social, you know, you're in a group and you're checking out who's your best mate, you know. You know, could I, uh, uh, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, no worries. You know, you're talking about uh, it might be safer in, in numbers. Mm-hmm. Do you ever, do you ever notice um, flocking patterns like, like you would in, in birds? Like a, a lot of times um, in birds, when that's the case, when they're kind of together, um, for predators, what they'll see is they're kind of trading off being on the outside because that's the most dangerous area and they're kind of 
taking turns. Everyone's trying to get toward right. the middle a right. little bit. Everyone's got to spend a little bit of time on the outside. Right. If you're going to be a good group member, you're going to do that, right? You're going to like move around. You know, and that's a really, that's going to one I'm going to put on my research question list. We see these aggregations in the past and maybe using some underwater video, maybe we can look at this and see if there does seem to be a certain formation and see if the animals, because we can identify individuals, we can see where they are in the group and how they might move around. That might be a really interesting question for somebody Because if it was structured like that, then it would be a little more clear that that's yeah. why they're together. Right. And sometimes, I mean, in some animal groups, you might have a hierarchy. Like in the, in, you know, the lead wolf is always out in front or something. You know, they, however... Usually they're like in the middle being, yeah, protected, being protected by all, all the around. other yeah, suckers. So, it would be interesting, and maybe this is something in, uh, you know, animals that are in aquariums. Maybe that would be an interesting thing to see if there was formation swimming, if what was the position of the animals in the group. But to get back to the kin mm-hmm. structure thing and our findings were that, um, and this is using genetics to look at degrees of relatedness, um, that animals found in groups were not necessarily related. So they didn't have any more than in- singles out there. They just weren't. They weren't necessarily more related if you saw two or three in a group than at random. So mm. it appears that the rays are not aggregated, aggregating based on, you know, sisters or brothers or knowing, you know, knowing each other or at least not, not knowing each other, but, you know, um, having kin close by. So what's the life history like? Because you, you were telling me that it's the gestation. The gestation period is a year, right? Right. So Which is, that's ra- crazy. Yeah, rays, There's humans that have babies faster than rays. Absolutely. So the estimated gestation for a uh, spotted eagle ray is about one year. Wow. And we know this. Through, and that's just one. Just, well, yeah. And they'll have, well, spotted eagle rays can have one to one to four on average. Mm, okay. Um, you no octomoms out there, though. No, well, there's some that might have more. <laughs> From some of the fisheries, there's some cases that have been do- documented more. Um, but typical mm-hmm. is, you know, and so, some of our aquariums have had successful births. Um, and typically there's been one, two, three. So um, they come out like little burritos. They're all folded up with their wings and then they pop out and then flip their wings out and they swim away. And, and there's no just... parental investment afterwards. So the, the pup is born and swims away and it has to be able to, you know, forage on its own. And You figure it out, kid. Yeah. That's, and, I'd be... I'd be way into having kids if that were. Here you go, you little burrito. Have yeah. at it. There's life. Get used to it. Um, hmm. Well, that's uh, that's very interesting. Was there anything else that you wanted to cover? I think we, I think we covered a lot. Yeah. Well, um, I think one one thing that I did want to say, and the reason that we're studying the set, the putting the satellite tags on these guys. And that's a direction that we want to go in the acoustic tags is, you know, these guys do, we do find them staying in an area. We'll have recaptures, but yet we understand these guys probably are migrating across, across international borders. Mm -hmm. Um, A a ray that we tagged um, with the satellite tag a few years ago, she took off from Sarasota Bay, went north in the Gulf, spent a little time up there and then tracked almost down towards Cuba before her tag came off. So that's one of our big questions and one of the next steps in our research is to really find out more about the movement patterns of these animals because um, to be able to like protect them or learn about, um, we need to understand where they're moving to and what habitats are important to them and what percentage of the time they're spending. So um, 
that's been really fascinating. So that's an area we'd love to expand into, but satellite tags are expensive. They're like 5,000 bucks a piece. So really has a thing for satellite tags. Wants to <laughs> buy uh, us a few satellite tags. That would be fantastic. Wow. $5,000 each. Uh, well, yeah. at least I'm sure they're getting cheaper and cheaper every year, right? At least. Well, yes, yeah, as, as technology is advancing, yeah. but you know, but it is a pretty amazing technology, but yeah. They, and then it just like ends up in some shark's belly somewhere or something yeah, no. like that. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that is uh wow. I, I would have never guessed that you guys are just sticking five thousand dollars on a thing and then oh hopefully <laughs> not many $5, hopefully $5, that sticks around a couple, a couple yeah so. wow uh well very cool yeah. well thank you kim at bassus hall for joining me and uh thank you guys for listening and uh, make sure and tell all of your friends and and when you're in sarasota um come come and see uh, kim check out uh, check out her business flow and go and visit her at the moat aquarium thank you thank you guys for listening don't forget to rate and review on itunes for me it tr- helps me out tremendously so thank thanks to everyone who's already done that next week uh back at arizona state university talking with scott cloudier uh really really interesting and different episode we talk a lot about how to engineer um communities to make them not only sustainable, but with a focus on on um, the individual's well-being within the community. And so what we can do from um, seven different parameters, um, like food management and transportation and such, to create new cities for ourselves that will ultimately make us happier. Very interesting episode, so make sure and tune in. And thank you for listening. I'm Dave Ross. Hey, and I'm Hampton Yunt. And we host Suicide Buddies on Starburns Audio. That's right. It's a podcast about suicide, but not to make light of it. We actually talk about suicidal thoughts, depression, kind of with a sense of levity that Dave and I have with each other. And he's my best friend. Come on. Yeah, we're buddies. <laughs> suicide Buddies. <laughs> That's the title. One of our favorite episodes that we've recorded so far is about this guy, Jan Pataki, who was a Polish aristocrat in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, one of the reasons... It's possible that he killed himself <laughs> is that he thought he was a werewolf. Oh. Check out a clip. It also makes me think, like, we were talking about in the Norway uh, black metal episode, how, like, just the culture of your surroundings can affect you. Like, yeah. he's in a castle in Poland. He's Like, I mean, if yeah. you lived in a castle in Poland and no one knew anything about anything, you might be like, I'm a bat. I'm probably a bat. <laughs> 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 That's like literally what happened to Batman. <laughs> he literally is in his mansion. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm, I'm a, a bat. bat. I'm a bat. I'm a <laughs> bat. I'm a, I'm I'm a bat. bat that helps people. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bat that helps people. I'm a, I'm a rich... I don't know what you want from me. And uh, my, and my a... girlfriend, she's a cat. She's a cat. My she, girlfriend's she, a cat. She steals things. She's a woman who steals things. She's a cat. I'm a bat. I'm a I bat. Help people. She's a cat. We fight a penguin. My. Uh, my... <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha